Hey there, kindred spirits. Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by my co-host, Reagan Duffy. Hi, kindred spirits. So why don't you curl up with a cup of tea and join us to discuss one of our all-time favorite books, Ella Montgomery's The Blue Castle. You don't have to be curled up with tea. Maybe peppermint mocha. That's my favorite winter season drink. Mm, I'm a chai latte fan, but you know, whatever the warm drink of your choice might be. Reagan, what did you enjoy more? Rereading The Blue Castle for this episode or reading Iron Flame, the sequel to Rebecca Yaros's Fourth Way? Because I read them both the same weekend and I do think that might have impacted the way I interpreted The Blue Castle. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I, for one, enjoyed the heck out of Iron Flame. Gosh, I tend not to have patience anymore for ultra long books, but man, can Rebecca Yaros ever write compelling conflict? I could not stop reading once I started. I mean, that book is a masterclass in conflict. As soon as something is resolved, something new comes in, right? I definitely think that romance and fantasy writers need to take note because that is how you do it. That is how you move a plot forward and forward and off the dang cliff. And that ending, I truly thought there were no more shocking cards on the table after Fourth Wing, but I was wrong. She basically said, hold my beer to her castle. (laughs) Well, luckily, I had finished my Blue Castle reread before launching into Iron Flame because I Mm. knew it would give me whiplash trying to go between these two books since they have very little in common. (laughs) But Iron Flame was really good. But... Okay, and with the book that's 625 pages long, some of it did feel unnecessary to the story. Maybe it'll be necessary later down the road. It felt like some of the interpersonal conflict was kind of shoehorned in to keep the stakes high. On the other hand, all of the main characters are like 22. So even being in the middle of a war for your very survival, they still have time for that kind of drama. So I think that tracks. Their brains are not done cooking. I mean, I know we were texting each other while we were reading it and we did a lot of like, why won't they just talk to each other? But again, like you say, that's very 22. It's very 22. Well, leaving the dragons and drama of Iron Flame behind, today we are going to recap The Blue Castle. And I know this might seem a little out of nowhere. Aren't we going to finish the Anne books first? And we will. We are going to get there. But when we were looking at some of the through lines and themes of the books that characterize Anne's young adult life, we kept talking about this book too. And one of the things we adore about the Anne series is how much time Maud spends on Anne's young adulthood prior to being married. It would have been somewhat unusual for books of its time, I think. And we love how she gives Anne a chance to really grow and mature and have some life experiences before she gets married. And there are a lot of similar through lines for The Blue Castle. It felt like it tied in with so many of the themes that we have discussed over the course of this season. So we wanted to wrap up our second season on a high note. And we know The Blue Castle is many of our listeners' favorite Montgomery book as well, after Anne, of course. And if for some reason you haven't read it yet, I really hope this episode encourages you to read it because it's so delicious and good. It's truly meant for adult readers. So if you didn't get to it in your younger years, now is the perfect time to read. It's a beautiful story of a young woman who has outgrown the strict overbearing family she has grown up with and who goes out in the world to really live for the first time in her life. It's just a bewitching little fable about who you become when you decide to lose yourself. 
and there's romance. So our kindred spirit of the episode has to be our heroine, Miss Valency Sterling. Valency is the only daughter of Mrs. Frederick Sterling of Deerwood, Ontario. The Sterlings are one of the old families of Deerwood, and Valency is under terrible social pressure to live up to the family model of decorum and to marry. A shocking diagnosis shakes her out of her misery, and she begins to break free of her domineering, meddlesome relatives. She goes to live in the woods with a notorious family. She takes up with a man who's thought to be a criminal. She goes to riotous dances and hotel masquerades. She swims in lakes and snowshoes through the forest and just generally lives her life as big and bright as she possibly can. We love seeing Valency's evolution from meek and spiritless to joyful and radiant and full of life. Our quote of the episode is the very first line of this book, which sets us up for this fairy tale. And I really think it's one of the best opening lines that Montgomery has in her long repertoire. If it had not rained on a certain May morning, Valency Sterling's whole life would have been entirely different. But it did rain, and you shall hear what happened to her because of it. Just a perfect first line. No, I love it. It adds to the faded quality of everything that is to follow. And it's very much a fairy tale, fable-like start to a story. Yeah. So in our story club today, let's get right into our recap of The Blue Castle. This book is actually much easier to recap than many of the Anne books because it's a much more straightforward plot. It's not as episodic in nature as so many of the Anne books are. We start off by meeting our heroine, Valency Sterling, on the morning of her 29th birthday. Valency is an only child, and she lives with her mother, Mrs. Frederick Sterling, and a relative of somewhat vague connection, cousin Christine Stickles. Both are middle-aged widows, Valency's father having died when she was quite young. Valency is unmarried, a fact that no one in her family lets her forget for an instant. As we learn in the second paragraph of the book, one does not sleep well sometimes when one is 29 on the morrow and unmarried in a community and connection where the unmarried are simply those who have failed to get a man. Poor Valency is miserable. She's deeply lonely, her life is boring and dreary, her room and her home are ugly and uncomfortable, and she has nothing to call her own. She dare not relieve her misery by crying because her mother will notice her red eyes and pester her with questions, and then judge any answers to her questions. She also doesn't want to cry because crying might spark the physical pain around her heart that she has intermittently been enduring in secret. Valency's family is, to put it plainly, horrible. Today is not only Valency's birthday, but also the day of Aunt Wellington's engagement anniversary picnic, an annual affair that will bring the whole clan together. Also, who throws a party to celebrate the anniversary of their engagement? Which just happens to be Valency's birthday. Like an actual, I, I can't. Anyway, Valency knows that she will either be ignored or subjected to endless pointed remarks about her unmarried status and all her other flaws. Valency's family, the Sterlings, are old money in Deerwood, Ontario. But Valency's father didn't leave very much when he died, so she, her mother, and cousin Stickles have to pinch pennies so as to outwardly keep up appearances. Her mother is extremely strict and stern and is prone to sulking and giving the silent treatment if Valency is not constantly compliant, meek, and agreeable. But even from the very opening of the book, it's clear there are hidden depths to Valency that have been suppressed and smothered by her overbearing family. We find out that Valency has a deep imagination, which has been the only thing that has saved her soul throughout her life. She lives a double life. Outwardly, she has a drab, dull appearance and existence. But internally, Valency lives in her blue castle. Quote, Valency had lived spiritually in the Blue Castle ever since she could remember. 
She had been a very tiny child when she found herself possessed of it. Always, when she shut her eyes, she could see it plainly, with its turrets and banners of the pine-clad mountain height, wrapped in its faint blue loveliness against the sunset skies of a fair and unknown land. This castle is filled with everything beautiful and populated with lovely maidens and handsome knights. In her blue castle, Valency is so beautiful that all the men vie for her attention and affection. In her castle, Valency is loved by a handsome hero, quote, one who wooed her with all the romantic ardor of the age of chivalry and won her after long devotion and many deeds of daring do and was wedded to her with pomp and circumstance in the great banner-hung chapel of the Blue Castle. Also, I love the detail that this hero's appearance changes as Valency grows up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really relatable. He has golden curls and blue eyes when she's 12, and at 15, he was tall, dark-haired, and pale-skinned. By 24, he had more of a strong and rugged appearance. And more recently, her hero had, quote, reddish tawny hair, a twisted smile, and a mysterious past. We'll see who ends up fitting that description. Okay, so I think we need to pause a moment here and just describe what our imaginary heroes or heroines would have looked like at ages 12, 15, and 24. I know when I was 12 or 13, I was utterly consumed with the TV show My So-Called Life, and Jordan Catalano, played by Jared Leto, was absolutely my romantic ideal. A close friend of mine and I still send emails to each other with subject lines like Jordan Catalano, so <laughs> that has hung on for a while. And then later in high school, I was equally in love, I think, with both Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy from Before Sunrise. I think I wanted to be the Kelly peanut butter to their sandwich and just wander around Prague with them forever. Mid-20s, like by 24, that's a little harder. I don't think I really had a celebrity ideal for my mid-20s. I was in law school. I feel like pop culture just escaped me for those years. But I had also just met my husband. And I was pretty head over heels in love with him. Well, I also had an Ethan Hawke crush, but mine was more from the Dead Poet Society era. In mm. fact, yeah, we could just any pick any of the Dead Poet Society boys. That's all of those worked for me. <laughs> so that would have been more in high school. And let's say, oh, John Cusack from Say Anything also. He's really charming in that movie. He's really, really charming in that movie. At 12, if I go younger... It could have been maybe Matthew Broderick from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but he was maybe a little smart alecky for me. I was always into more earnest and bookish as a type. So I'm kind of not kidding that Jonathan Crombie's Gilbert was probably one of my very first crushes. Oh, Reagan. And then let's see, mid-20s, I'm thinking it was probably like Patrick Dempsey in early, early Grey's Anatomy. That feels right. That's right. What what do they call him? Dr. Dr. McDreamy? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to Valency. Escaping to her blue castle in her mind has been the only thing that has brought Valency joy. But on the morning of her birthday, she can't find the key to the blue castle. Quote, reality pressed on her too hardly, barking at her heels like a maddening little dog. She was 29, lonely, undesired, ill-favored, the only homely girl in a handsome clan with no past and no future. As far as she could look back, life was drab and colorless with not one single crimson or purple spot anywhere. As far as she could look forward, it seemed certain to be just the same until she was nothing but a solitary little withered leaf clinging to a wintry bough. Valency thinks, and I have to go on living because I can't stop. I may have to live 80 years. Oh, Valency. There's one small bit of luck for her this morning, which is that it's raining. So the dreaded engagement anniversary picnic will not happen. 
It's never occurred to Valency that she could just not go to a picnic or other family affair. She knows exactly how the picnic would go. Everyone calling her Doss, a hated childhood nickname, casting up her unmarried status and advancing age on her, and judging others and comparing Valency to her beautiful cousin Olive. So I spent a bit of time, Reagan, trying to figure out what Valency's nickname, Doss, means. In the book, it's spelled D-O-S-S. And that's not really a word I know. And maybe just because I'm an American. Because eventually I figured out that it's kind of like a slangy British term for sleeping in a sort of like makeshift or rough way. Like she dosed on the floor or something like this, right? If someone kind of passes out on the floor. But it's also a pejorative term for the lazy person. So mm. like, I suppose the idea is like someone who would just like fall asleep anywhere. And so you can almost kind of see how that might have started as a cute nickname in babyhood for like an infant who was an easy sleeper. But it's it's actually pretty offensive for an adult, especially one who is as hardworking and dutiful as Valency is. Yeah, Doss is never explained or given any context. And Valency mm-hmm. has a middle name, Jane, which is boring, but it could have served instead. They didn't want to call her Valency. Apparently, Valency's maternal grandfather named her, and he was the one eccentric in the clan, not mm-hmm. a Sterling. So Valency has escaped the picnic and another afternoon of everyone behaving the exact same way they always have and saying the exact same things they always say. Valency hopes that the canceled picnic will give her a chance to go to the library and check out another nature book by John Foster, a sort of Henry David Thoreau type. Aside from the Blue Castle... John Foster's books have been the only other speck of loveliness in Valency's life. Foster's books seem to be nature meditations, poetic descriptions of the natural world and animal life. And even though Valency doesn't have a lot of experience with nature herself, the books absolutely enthrall her. She's never allowed to read novels, but since these books are nature books, her mother begrudgingly allows it. Begrudging because it's obvious that Valency enjoys reading them. To Mrs. Frederick Sterling, quote, it was permissible, even laudable, to read to improve your mind and your religion, but a book that was enjoyable was dangerous. Uh, yikes. So Valency also decides that she might go see Dr. Trent about this odd pain that keeps occurring around her chest. Now, Dr. Trent is a noted heart specialist, and more importantly, he's not related to the Sterlings the way the other local doctor is. Valency doesn't want any of her family to know about her heart pain, knowing that they would all flutter around her, demanding that she try every quack remedy and insinuating that she is weak and less for having heart pain to begin with. The Sterlings are super into this stuff called Red Fern's Purple Pills, which is some kind of popular cure-all medicine. The book seems to be set, I think, in the early 1910s, before World War I, certainly. And that was very much a time when health tonics and pills and liniments were sold pretty widely and not regulated at all. So the Sterlings are particularly allegiant to the Red Fern brand, but Valency clearly thinks it's all charlatanism. Valency takes advantage of her free afternoon to go see Dr. Trent, and she's decided to pay him with a little bit of money that her father put aside for her. Valency manages to escape to the library under the guise of running an errand for Cousin Stickles. She then picks up the new John Foster book and almost talks herself out of going to the doctor. She's afraid that if she's found out, she will offend her mother and her uncle James, the reputed, quote, brains of the family, by not consulting him. And she's afraid Dr. Trent will tell her that it's all in her head. And then she reads this life-changing passage in Foster's book. Fear is the original sin. Almost all evil in the world has its origin in the fact that someone is afraid of something. Valency resolves to see Dr. Trent. 
Dr. Trent examines her and takes her seriously. But just before he can tell her what's going on, his phone rings. It's clearly an emergency, and he runs out of the room and out of his house. The housekeeper comes in to tell Valency that Dr. Trent just got word that his son was in a terrible car accident in Montreal, and he only has 10 minutes to catch the train. She advises Valency to come back another time. So Valency wanders home in a funk with no new answers. Everyone she sees seems to be living life. The girls whispering secrets to each other, the young couple walking with their arms around each other, even Barney Snaith whistling and fixing his disreputable car on the side of the road. Barney Snaith is notorious in Deerwood, a man who arrived about five years ago to live up back. I'm assuming that's the wilds and foresty area outside of Deerwood. He is rumored to be an escaped convict or something of that nature, and he hangs out with Roaring Able Gay, the town drunk. Barney Snaith is not respectable and doesn't adhere to the rigid social structures that the Sterling family so takes pride in. And we get a little hint that Barney is fascinating to Valency. The current hero of her blue castle has tawny hair and a rakish air, just like Barney. Valency returns home to her usual miserable existence, badgered and bullied by her mother with not a second to herself. Quote, Valency's day of destiny had come and gone. She ended it as she had begun it, in tears. A few days later, Valency deeply offends her mother. Valency has a little rosebush given to her by cousin Georgiana a few years ago. It's green and healthy, but has never, ever bloomed. And all of a sudden, Valency has had enough of it. Feels like it's mocking her. So she starts hacking at it with the garden shears to cut it down. Mrs. Frederick is horrified, looking out to see Valency frantically chopping at the bush and demanding that she stop. When Valency defiantly says the bush is hers, Mrs. Frederick goes into one of her famous sulks, immediately refusing to speak to Valency or acknowledge her presence. And she will likely continue to do so for the next two or three days, her anger infecting the entire house. This ends up being a stroke of luck for Valency. Because when she goes to get the mail from the post office that afternoon, there's a letter for her. And since her mother is ignoring her, Valency is not asked if there is any mail when she gets home, and thus does not have to share that she got a letter. The letter is from Dr. Trent, who is still in Montreal with his son, and who will not be back for the next year as his son recovers. The letter is blunt. Although Miss Sterling is misspelled with an E instead of an I, it's the contents that matter. He says that she has a very dangerous and fatal form of heart disease called angina pectoris, and it's in the last stages. There's nothing that can be done for her, and if she takes great care of herself, she might live a year at most. She must avoid all excitement and strenuous physical activity. Any sudden jolt or shock could be fatal. There's a prescription to take whenever the pain attacks come on, but that will only manage the pain, and it's not a cure. Okay, Reagan. I don't know about this. What do we think these attacks really are? Do you think these are actually panic attacks? Because I think over the course of the book, Maud is doing some like really interesting things with health and physical appearance as metaphors for happiness and fulfillment. So I'm not certain if it matters whether or not this is a realistic physiological explanation for these attacks. But it did strike me that Valency's symptoms are kind of similar to a panic attack or maybe just something that's based in fear and anxiety more than anything else. Sort of just like a tightening around her chest. Possibly, but it does seem to be that she's in a lot of pain. Yeah, and that's panic true. Panic attacks are really characterized by difficulty breathing, which can sometimes bring on like tightness in the chest, but it's really like you don't hear anything that she talks about in terms of not being able to breathe. But, you know, that doesn't... It's described as like feeling very constricting specifically around her heart, which is seems you know, pretty serious. In any case, Valency doesn't sleep all night thinking over her life. Quote, she made a discovery that surprised her. 
She, who had been afraid of almost everything in life, was not afraid of death. It did not seem in the least terrible to her, and she need not now be afraid of anything else. Why had she been afraid of things? Because of life. Afraid of Uncle Benjamin because of the menace of poverty and old age. But now she would never be old, neglected, tolerated. Afraid of being an old maid all her life. But now she would not be an old maid very long. Afraid of offending her mother and her clan because she had to live with and among them and couldn't live peaceably if she didn't give in to them. But now she hadn't. Valency felt a curious freedom. Yeah, now that she knows her time is limited, the world suddenly looks very different to her. But Valency doesn't want to tell her family because she knows they will make a huge fuss and bother. They will demand to drag her for various second opinions. They will make her take every quack remedy, particularly Red Fern's blood bitters or Red Fern's purple pills. Doc Red Fern has really cornered the market on snake oil supplements in the area. Why are blood bitters? That's so awful. (laughs) (laughs) She's afraid her mother and cousin Stickles won't even let her sleep alone once they know. Valency decides not to tell anyone, and while she's not afraid of death, she finds she resents it, resents having to die when she has never lived. Quote, rebellion flamed up in her soul as the dark hours passed by, not because she had no future, but because she had no past. This is kind of like Ruby Gillis's death scene, but even more so. We talked a lot about how the tragedy of Ruby's early death is that she wanted so much more from life. She wanted marriage and a family. She wanted all these things to look forward to in the future, and she knew she wasn't going to have them. Valency not only doesn't have a future, she doesn't even have a past. Well, and I think that's almost what makes it worse, right? Ruby at least lived her life up until then, and that's why she was looking forward to a future. This is almost the flip side of it, right? Yeah. Valency reviews her life and realizes she's never been happy, never been a presence in any way. Quote, I've had nothing but a secondhand existence, decided Valency. All the great emotions of life have passed me by. I've never even had a grief. And have I ever really loved anybody? Do I really love mother? No, I don't. My life has been empty, empty. Nothing is worse than emptiness, nothing. Finally, Valency has a revelation. I've been trying to please other people all my life and failed. After this, I shall please myself. I shall never pretend anything again. So at this point, Valency, having had this reckoning, she starts to take steps to live more authentically. I mean, she throws out an ugly old jar of potpourri in her room that she always hated. She refuses to take purple pills or blood bitters. She refuses to answer to the name Doss any longer. She moves the bed in her room to the opposite corner. She reads her John Foster book on a Sunday. She talks back to her mother. And Cousin Stickles even saw something particularly dreadful that she keeps to herself. She saw Valency sliding down the banister. These are all kind of tiny rebellions, but... Uncle Herbert and Aunt Alberta's silver wedding anniversary is the first chance for the new Valency to see the extended family. At this party are Aunt and Uncle Wellington, the parents of the beloved and adored and beautiful Olive. Uncle James, sarcastic and convinced that his opinion on everything was needed by the family. Critical and disagreeable Aunt Isabel. Rich bachelor Uncle Benjamin, who tells terrible jokes. Cousin Georgiana, who is sweet, but who frets and who always worries about who's going to die next. Aunt Mildred, who's convinced that she knows the best about everything. Cousin Gladys, who loves describing her health issues down to the very last detail. And Olive, the paragon of the clan, constantly compared to Valency because she is everything Valency isn't. Conventionally beautiful, popular, and clever. Olive is engaged and has always had many foes. Basically, all these people are awful. The dinner is proceeding, much like every other dinner that has preceded it. All the same old stories and jokes, everyone stuffy and proper. So 
At one point, Uncle James decides to elevate the conversation by asking everybody what they think, quote, the greatest happiness is. Okay, he's really trying to go deep this time. All the answers are conventional. Mrs. Frederick even says that the greatest happiness is to spend your life in loving service for others. Oh, that's rich, Mrs. Frederick. Oh, I know. It's so passive aggressive. Then Valency interrupts with the greatest happiness is to sneeze when you want to. The clan is struck dumb momentarily, both because Valency offered an answer at all, and then by the outrageousness of the statement. Uncle Benjamin tries to cover the shock silence by asking a terrible riddle that he's asked many times. And this time, instead of dutifully playing along, Valency answers the riddle herself and says, You have asked that riddle at least 50 times in my recollection, Uncle Ben. Why don't you hunt up some new riddles if riddle you must? It is such a fatal mistake to try to be funny if you don't succeed. Oh, no one has ever spoken to Uncle Benjamin like this. Aunt Alberta tries to right this sinking ship by telling a story, and when Valency laughs at it, Aunt Isabel decides maybe some direct criticism will cow Valency back into submission. But Valency tosses it right back at her. The more folks try to gain control, the more Valency says outrageous things. The family tries to ignore her. But then they bring up Barney Snaith. Valency somehow knew they would. There was something about his disregard for their opinion that seems to offend the Sterling's sense of rightness about the world. Yeah, they're kind of obsessed with him. They tell all the old speculation about him, accusing him of practically being a murderer. Valency says, well, what has he done? No one can come up with anything that has been proved that he has done wrong. But they are sure that anyone who lives out in the wilds on an island... And no one knows who his family is or where he came from. And that must be proof enough. As Cousin Sarah says, the very idea of a man named Snaith, why the name itself is enough to condemn him. Okay, I almost agree with her. The name Snaith is pretty disreputable. (laughs) They all argue with Valency and insinuate that Barney Snaith must be the father of Sissy Gay's illegitimate child. Mm. Valency makes the subtext text and then she defends him, sure that it's not true, although she doesn't exactly understand why it's so important to her to defend Barney. She says, you are all evil-minded, senseless gossips. Can't you leave poor Sissy Gay alone? She's dying. Whatever she did, God or the devil has punished her enough for it. You needn't take a hand too. As for Barney Snaith, the only crime he has been guilty of is living to himself and minding his own business. He can, it seems, get along without you, which is an unpardonable sin, of course, in your little snobocracy. I mean, that's quite a zinger. So, (laughs) you know, with that, Valency can feel that the excitement is starting to bring on her heart pain. So she excuses herself and she hurries on home on her own, barely getting home before the pain becomes too great to bear. It's quite the worst pain she's had yet. And she finally manages to get to her medication to reduce the symptoms. Meanwhile, the rest of the clan is left behind totally outraged and wondering what's wrong with her. Mrs. Frederick confesses all those other small rebellions that Valency had been showing over the last week or so, and the family concludes that she's unbalanced. And in the words of Uncle Benjamin, clean dippy. They plan to make her see Dr. Marsh tomorrow. It's a really interesting scene for a couple of reasons. First, that her family sees her rebellion as madness instead of just sticking up for herself for once. I think as readers, we really cheer Valency on for finally speaking her mind. But then on the other hand, she sort of overcorrected. A few of her remarks are not just impolite or straightforward, they're positively mean-spirited. And of course, we know this is coming from a lifetime of being passive and a people-pleaser, and so it makes a lot of sense now that she's just feeling hateful toward everyone in her family. 
Yeah, she knows what she's doing here, and she's deliberately being a little hurtful to people who constantly hurt her over and over again. The next day, Valency refuses to see the doctor, and neither Uncle Benjamin nor Olive can make her go. Stick to your guns. The family decides to just wait and watch carefully. Uncle James tries consulting with Dr. Marsh on his own. Dr. Marsh doesn't see anything particularly concerning at all about Valency's behavior. Certainly nothing that would warrant locking her up for lunacy, as Uncle James would like to do. Imagine being Dr. Marsh in this situation. And, you know, James comes to her and is like, my niece has gone around the bend. And he's like, well, what did she do? And she's like, she backtalked at the table. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, and, and anything else? <laughs> well, it so happens that immediately following this dinner, Roaring Abel Gay, the town drunk, who is also the town carpenter, also the father of the disgraced sissy gay, comes to repair the front porch of Valency's house. Real quick, why is the town drunk the town carpenter? <laughs> Seems dangerous. I feel, like, I feel like there's some problems there. Well, this was before power tools. True. Maybe he, it's, you know, less likely that he's going to severely injure himself than maybe now. Yeah, the worst that can happen is kind of like hammer his own thumb. Yeah. Valency sits out on the porch to chat with him while he works. He's only a little drunk while he works, just enough to be very talkative and genial. Sissy, short for Cecilia, is dying of tuberculosis. Several years ago, Sissy had gone to work at a fancy hotel for the summer and had come back pregnant, not saying who the father was. Of course, enormous scandal. And whereas before, many of the women in town had taken Sissy under their wing. She was a sweet, motherless girl. But now she was completely shunned. The baby had died when he was only a year old, but Sissy continued to be shunned forever after. And then two years ago, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis and has been dying by inches since then. Abel says he can't get anyone to keep house for him and Sissy between the tuberculosis and his reputation as a drunk. And Sissy is too tired and sick to keep house for them herself anymore. Valency's heart is wrung by this tale. She feels for Sissy, who is always a sweet, friendly girl, and feels terrible that she's all alone in her last weeks of life. Terrible that she has never gone to see her because she had been so worried about her own family's disapproval. Valency offers right then to come take care of Sissy and keep house for Roaring Abel. So, unbeknownst to her mother, Valency packs a bag and sends it off with Abel. After supper, Valency announces that she's leaving. And why? And she walks right off. The way Mrs. Frederick tells it is like this. Quote, I said, Doss, where are you going? And she said, I'm going to look for my blue castle. The family is aghast and convinced that this viewpoint is proof that Valency is truly insane. They resolve to consult the doctor again and a lawyer this time. Valency launches into her new life with a feeling of exhilaration and freedom. Sissy is so happy to have some thoughtful company crying, it's been so lonely. It would be just like heaven to have someone here like you. You were always so sweet to me long ago. And Valency is suddenly happy. Here was someone who needed her, someone she could help. She was no longer a superfluidity. Valency sets to work cleaning the neglected house and then spends afternoon wandering the Pine Barrens looking for flowers with Sissy. She reads John Foster's books to Sissy, cooks and tidies, and loves the freedom. No one bothering her with questions or riddles. She can go to bed when she wants, sneeze when she wants, sit up late and look at the moon if she wants. And it turns out that the mysterious Barney Snaith comes by often, bringing <laughs> sissy treats like oranges from town, doing heavier chores that might need doing, talking and smoking with Roaring Abel in the evenings. 
Valency finds that Barney is easy to talk to. And what's more, she has an almost instinctive attraction to him. And it's interesting because she doesn't characterize it as romantic interest at first. Maybe romance feels so impossible that it just hasn't occurred to her. But right away, Barney takes up a lot of space in her mind. Barney is described in some detail as having a rakish expression, wild mismatched eyebrows and reddish hair. Valency notices he's always a little unkept and right away she feels like she wants to take care of him. She wants to sew the buttons on his coat and make him shave every day. One day he stops by to offer to bring some groceries back for Valency, Sissy, and Roaring Abel. And the two have their first full conversation that we see on the page. It's kind of amazing to be honest. You see their whole relationship turn on a dime in this one encounter. They start out pleasantly, neighborly, Barney asks if Valency needs anything, and she asks for some salt codfish. Very romantic. (laughs) He turns to go. But then something makes Barney turn around. The realization that Valency has done something rather extraordinary by leaving her prim, proper family to come up back to take care of the ruined sissy and keep house for the wild Abel. And it is, truly. She sacrificed her reputation and security for this. Barney calls her a brick, a really salt-of-the-earth good person. She responds, it's her pleasure. She's working for a wage and she likes it here. And Barney has another realization. Not only is Valency a fine lady from an old family working for a relative pittance out in the woods with a notorious young woman, she's living with a man who is usually drunk. He says, you know, if Roaring Abel ever tries to annoy you. Okay, what? What? What will Barney do? I need to know. Is he going to come to her rescue? Is this her knight in shining armor? Why is he suddenly so interested in Valency's well-being? I think this is the point where we are out of the purely neighborly territory. Or he's just a chivalrous young man. I think he's realized. I think he's, I think something has turned in his mind. Here is this lady who two weeks ago was a member of the stuck-up clan, but now she's out here. So she's not who I thought she was. And I want to know more. Valency says, don't worry. She likes Roaring Abel and he's been lovely to her. Barney admits that he likes Abel as well, but he worries about the swearing and the obscene songs when Abel gets drunk. Valency promises him that when Abel gets profane, she and Sissy go to another room and shut the door. But then Valency is struck by a sly impishness. And she tells Barney that she often feels like damning things herself. And I swear to you, Reagan, this I think is where Barney's whole world explodes. He might not know it yet, And he will tell Valency later on in the book that he doesn't fall in love with her till later. But I think this is the moment he falls. To quote the book, For a moment Barney started. Was this elfin girl the little old maidish creature that had stood there two minutes ago? Surely there was magic and devilry going on in that shabby, weedy old garden. Then he laughed. Barney goes then to pick up the groceries. But before the chapter ends, we get one more line that absolutely solidifies Barney as the romantic hero of this book. We know he's a true romance hero with this line. Barney tells Valency, Sissy Gay is the sweetest girl I ever knew. And there's a man somewhere I'd like to shoot if I could ever find him, Barney said savagely. Now that is some hero talk. The more time Valency spends with him, the more she likes everything about him. From his appearance, to his affection for his rackety old car, which he's named Lady Jane Grey, to the stories he tells about his adventures in Alaska and his encounters with nature closer to home. The only thing that is not a point in his favor is that he hates John Foster, whose writing Barney calls piffle when he hears Valency read aloud to Sissy. Now, 
Naturally, the Sterlings did not just forget about Valency when she ran off to Roaring Abel's home. Instead, they send several envoys to Abel's home to entreat Valency to come home. First up, Uncle James, who tells her that this is not a fit place for her with that jailbird snake hanging around every evening. Dr. Stalling, the minister, comes next, and he almost succeeds. Valency is pretty frightened of him and knows that if he directly commands her, she will have trouble resisting. He does command her, and Valency is on the verge of packing up and following him when she remembers that quote from John Foster about fear being the original sin. Valency holds that in her mind and refuses the minister, determined that she would not be false to her inner voice. She tells the minister that she does not remember her childhood fondly. She does not care what people say, and she does not owe anything to her mother. Dr. Stalling leaves, scandalized and certain that Valency has lost her mind. Last up, Valency's cousin Georgiana comes. Georgiana is one of the few Sterlings who is sweet to Valency, if spineless in the face of the rest of the clan. Valency kindly hears Georgiana out and then sends her on her way. We are told that to Valency's mother, it would have been easier if Valency had died. This is so wild to me. So during this middle section of the book where Valency has left home and is really stealing her resolve not to return, I kept thinking about the people who make the decision to go no contact with their families. You know, I have some friends who have done this recently, and I really have always felt that it's a very like kind of tragic last resort thing to do. But this book actually helped me conceive of it in a slightly different way. When people cut their families off, it's not always just because of cruelty, right? Although for some people, they are protecting themselves from cruelty or from manipulation. But you can also choose to separate yourself from your family of origin because they're preventing you from becoming the person that you need to become. You know, we have some family dynamics that have such like deeply ingrained roles that there's just no room to grow. There's no room to be different. And I kind of think that's what's going on with the Sterlings. They're keeping Valency small because they can't imagine her any other way. They can't imagine their family any other way. And now this is the time in Valency's life for her to grow. So she has to leave. She can't stay with them. Well, and here's the thing. Valency is setting boundaries about how she wants to be treated. And if the Sterlings were to accept that she has the right and ability to make decisions for herself, even if they don't like the decisions, there would be space for a relationship with her. Valency's mother is the one who is choosing to act like Valency is dead because she's making a decision she doesn't like. What did Valency ever ask from her other than to stop calling me Doss <laughs> and let me read my books? <laughs> Such huge demands. Valency gets her first earned wages from Roaring Abel, the very first money that she has to spend freely on herself. She immediately buys a lovely modern green dress and hat adorned with red accents. She feels a little uncomfortable in the low neck and short sleeves. The years of having modesty drummed into her aren't quite shucked off in an instant, so she can't bring herself to wear it yet. Valency also starts attending the Free Methodist Church up back rather than the Presbyterian Church helmed by the terrible Dr. Stalling. I guess up back would be the more rural community, less, quote, civilized than the proper residents of Deerwood, mostly poor and illiterate. The Free Methodist Church is served by an old minister who is so sincere that Valency finds for the first time that she likes going to church. Quote, she went to church because she liked it and because in some inexplicable way it did her good. Old Mr. Towers believed exactly what he preached and Somehow, it made a tremendous difference. Valency hears of a party up back at Chidley Corners, and while the Corners have a reputation for being rough and nowhere a proper young lady should be found, Rory Nable has been hired to play the fiddle for the dance and invites her to come with him, saying she could use a little fun. 
She's working too hard. And Valancy wants to go, testing out the boundaries of her newfound freedom. She wears the new green dress and solves the problem of feeling exposed by the lack of collar on the dress by gathering red clovers and stringing them into a necklace and adding a circlet of them to her hair. And for once, Valancy feels... Well, if not beautiful, at least not ugly. Sissy wants her to have a good time, but knows that a corners dance will be very different from the proper dances Valency would have gone to in Deerwood. And she notes to Valency that there might be liquor involved, and she insinuates that it could get a bit rough. Valency isn't worried and goes off with Roy Nabel. At first, Valency has a marvelous time. She's asked to dance, very politely, by a couple of nice up-back boys, and even overhears her first compliment, as one young man asks another if he knew who the girl in green is, and the other responded with, nope, guess she's from out front, port maybe, got a stylish look to her, and then the first man saying, no butte, but cute looking, I'll say, did you ever see such eyes? Valency had never heard anyone compliment her appearance before, and she's tickled by it. But by 11, another crowd rolls in, drunk and rowdy. Fights start breaking out, and the tone shifts to a wilder one. The Corners is 12 miles away from Roaring Abel's place, and Roaring Abel can't leave till the dance is over. Then, Valency spots Barney through the crowd. She's immediately relieved to see him, if vaguely annoyed that he hasn't shaved. And just in time, because an obviously drunk man demands a dance from Valency, and when she turns him down, he grabs her and demands not just a dance, but a kiss. Valency is rightly frightened, but Barney wades through the crowd and lands a well-placed punch on the jaw of the man holding her. Romance hero! Romance hero! He grabs Valency's hand and helps her out the window and they run through the woods, finally pausing to catch their breath. Barney explains that when he had dropped by the gay house, Sissy had told him that Valency had gone to the corners dance. She hadn't wanted to tell Valency not to go, but she was worried. So he came up specifically to look for Valency. Valency felt a sudden delightful glow irradiating soul and body under the dark pines. Barney leads her back to where he's left his noisy old car and they start the drive back home until the car runs out of gas and strands them on the side of the road at least nine miles from Deerwood and the nearest gas station. Uh, So now the only thing to do is wait until another car comes along and they can borrow enough gas to get them back to Roy Nables. Imagine living in a time when you can just borrow gas from someone, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Valency and Barney sit in companionable silence for a while, listening to the night sounds. And then Valency has a revelation. Quote, some things dawn on you slowly. Some things come by lightning flashes. Valency had had a lightning flash. She knew quite well now that she loved Barney. Yesterday, she had been all her own. Now she was this man's. Yet he had done nothing, said nothing. He had not even looked at her as a woman, but that didn't matter. Nor did it matter what he was or what he had done. She loved him without any reservations. She had realized quite simply and fully that she loved him in the moment when he was leaning on the car door, explaining that Lady Jane had no gas. She had looked deep into his eyes in the moonlight and had known. In just that infinitesimal space of time, everything was changed. She was no longer unimportant little old maid Valancy Sterling. She was a woman, full of love, and therefore rich and significant, justified to herself. Life was no longer empty and futile, and death could cheat her of nothing. Love had cast out her last fear. Barney need never know it, though she would not in the least have minded his knowing. But she knew it, and it made a tremendous difference to her. 
all of a sudden her life has meaning. Remember earlier, the night after Valency received the news of her death sentence diagnosis, she had regretted that she had never loved anyone, not even her mother. Mm-hmm. And here, just loving someone gives her life shape and reason. It doesn't matter to Valency if Barney doesn't return her love. That's not the point. The point is that she matters because she has love to give. And I think that's such a unique viewpoint for a romance story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Valency kind of doesn't care if Barney loves her. In loving him, her life has color and meaning that exist on its own. That's kind of a lovely philosophy, isn't it? That our purpose in life is to find someone to love. You know, a friend of mine once shared a really profound insight that she had heard from her therapist, and it's really stuck with me. She said, love is never wasted. Mm. And I find that a really deeply meaningful viewpoint. Yeah. I really like this moment, Reagan. You know, I think that so often we think of love as either requited or unrequited. And requited love, reciprocated love, is a cause for joy, while unrequited love is a cause for sorrow or heartbreak or pity. But the way Valency is experiencing love in this moment, she's not concerned about whether Barney reciprocates. She's simply enjoying the feeling of loving someone. That feeling has added something special to her life, and she's just enjoying seeing the world with that fresh perspective. As they are sitting in the car, waiting for someone to come along, Barney and Valency start talking about dreams. Barney dreams of going ballooning, and Valency tells him all about her blue castle and her life before coming to Roaring Naples. Valency is tempted to tell Barney about her heart, but she doesn't. She shares how she feels alive for the first time in her life, though. And then a car finally approaches, and Barney waves it down. It's Valency's Uncle Wellington and her cousin Olive. Of course. Of course it's the awful Sterlings. (laughs) Uncle Wellington and Olive are flabbergasted, and her uncle is torn on whether to help them or not, but decides ultimately it is better to help them than it is for someone else to find Valency alone with Barney's faith. The worst. And after that, Barney and Valency start spending a lot of time together, in public no less, much to the embarrassment of the Sterling clan. Her mother even stops going to church just to avoid all the gossip. Valency is sure that Barney only invites her on these adventures because he pities her after she shared her history with him, but she doesn't care. One night, Sissy shares her story with Valency. Sissy had met a rich young college student from Toronto staying at a nearby hotel. She had fallen in love with him, and of course, since no one had told her about sex or how pregnancy happens, Sissy didn't understand the risks that she was taking. And once she found out she was pregnant, she wrote to him. He came to see Sissy and said he would marry her. But Sissy could see that he didn't love her and was only offering because he thought he should. She says, he wasn't so bad, but he was so young. And what was I that he should keep on loving me? So she sent him away. And we're going to see this theme some more in the Blue Castle. This idea of not wanting to trap someone in a life they don't want, even if it means sacrificing your own happiness. But Sissy wasn't really so unhappy without him. She came home and Roaring Abel was gentle with her and she didn't mind being shunned by the town because she loved her sweet little baby. And it seems like this town sucks anyway. She says, and he was all mine. Nobody else had any claim on him. When he died, oh, Valency, I thought I must die too. I didn't see how anybody could endure such anguish and live. Sissy says she was even glad when she found out she was dying, presumably because that meant she would eventually be reunited with her son. 
She's also glad that she has shared her story with Valency, who never judged Sissy. A few nights later, it's clear that Sissy's time has come. She won't let Valency send for Roaring Abel or for the doctor. She just wants peace and to hold Valency's hand. And she passes away at sunrise, suddenly looking past Valency and smiling. Valency makes Sissy ready for burial herself, and all of Deerwood shows up for the funeral as if they hadn't ignored her for the last few years. Death erases all sins, I guess. All the Sterlings come, trying to give an air of respectability to Valency's time with Sissy. Maude tells us actually that the Sterlings met ahead of the funeral to decide how to handle it, right? They weren't even sure if they were going to attend, but they had like a family meeting. <laughs> and they decided that if they all attended, then their presence would be seen as like tacit approval of Valency's time spent nursing this poor girl in her final months of life. So in a way, they're really like a very socially canny family, and they see this as their chance to explain away some of Valency's odd behavior and restore her reputation. And while Valency is unmoved by their show of solidarity, I think it's notable that they are supporting her in the only way that they really understand or value by trying to bring her back into Deerwood society. Mm, I think you're giving them a little extra credit there. I think it's more (laughs) about protecting themselves than protecting Valency. Yeah, you're probably right. They're they're definitely self-motivated before being worried about her. Valency, back in her ugly brown dress, is capably taking care of everything at the funeral. The Sterlings are actually a little impressed with her competence, admitting to themselves that maybe her mother really had been too strict with her. At the end of the funeral, Valency's mother asks if she'll come home. Valency doesn't commit exactly, but vaguely says she, of course, won't be staying at Roaring Abel's, but she's got to finish winding everything up at his place over the next few days. Valency says her goodbyes to Abel the next day. She won't tell him where she's going, but says she won't be going back to her mother's house. Abel leaves her with some really important parting words. He tells Valency that her little finger is worth more than the whole Sterling clan put together. Affection star Valency needs those kind words. After Abel leaves, Valency waits in the garden until she hears Barney's car rattling down the road. Barney pops out and asks if there's anything he can help Valency with. Such a nice guy. And Valency says, yes, there is something you can do for me. Will you marry me? Shocker! <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so wild. Valency's so brave. Barney, of course, thinks this is a joke, but Valency clarifies that she's very sincere. She tells him there are two reasons for this. She can't quite say I love you, but she does say I'm crazy about you. And for the second reason, she shares Dr. Trent's letter with Barney. Valency tells him that she just can't live out the rest of her short life back in Deerwood. And this time she gets out the words, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. That's all. She tells Barney that he doesn't have to love her back and that she doesn't care if he's done something terrible in his past. Barney is taken aback to hear that Valency cares that much for him, but he says he will marry her under the condition that she never sees his mail or questions him about things he wants to hide. They must never lie to each other, except I guess about all the things he needs to hide from her. (laughs) And, (laughs) And she will have to go live up on his island with him. Valency says her condition is that he never refer to her heart condition and he has to treat her like she's perfectly healthy. She's even written a letter explaining it all for her family in the event that she drops dead. He asks if she will marry him as he is, dressed in muddy overalls and unshaved. And Valency says yes. Barney takes her hands. Valency, he said, trying to speak lightly. Of course, I'm not in love with you. Never thought of such a thing as being in love. But do you know, I've always thought you were a bit of a dear. Why do I love that? I know. <laughs> oh. Why do I love a bit of a dear? 
Well, Barney goes off and gets the marriage license, and the very next evening, he comes to get her. His overalls are clean, and he's shaved at least. Hey, Barney. Okay. And they are married by the free Methodist minister. Quote, no veil, no flowers, no guests, no presents, no wedding cake, but just Barney. For all the rest of her life, there would be Barney. But there is a ring. And this is a bit of an extension of what we talked about in Windy Poplars with Nora, Dovey, and Hazel all wanting the pretty trappings of a wedding just as much as they want to be married. Mm -hmm. It's that flip side of it. Yep. Barney has a little cabin on a tiny island in the lake, a whole island to himself. Valency is thrilled by this. They have to row across to the island to get there. The cabin is tiny but cozy, and Barney has two lovable cats. He also has a little shack next to the cabin and tells Valency she must never go in it. Valency says that's fine with her. You can see how Valency's sense of humor is really blooming here. She tells Barney, Bluebeard's chamber. I shan't even think of it. I don't care how many wives you have hanging up in it, so long as they're really dead. <laughs> we also get a few hints that Barney is maybe cynical and bitter about his past, kind of in the way that he laughs, but mm. nothing concrete. When Valency catches sight of the island for the first time, shrouded in lilac mist at the tail end of the sunset, she exclaims, My blue castle! Oh, my blue castle! They canoe across, and Barney lifts her out of the canoe and gives her her very first kiss. Welcome home, dear. Oh, swoon! <laughs> I love Welcome Home, Dear. You know he's just murmuring those words in a voice that only she can hear. This wedding scene and this little moment of crossing the threshold are so deceptively simple. Maude is really underselling the importance of what Valency and Barney are doing. They're taking this huge step, right? I mean, Valency is essentially fulfilling her purpose as a woman, at least as a woman of this era. And Barney, too, is changing his life significantly but all in this very small, intimate, informal manner. And this is all a direct clapback to the pomp and decorum that Valency's family would have demanded in a sterling wedding. But it's also a metaphor for the natural and almost intuitive way that Barney and Valency relate to each other. Back in Deerwood, the Sterlings are all expecting Valency home at any minute and have found various excuses to drop by to see if she's arrived. Oh, I know. This is so funny. They've all just like set upon Mrs. Frederick's house, like waiting for Valency to like walk in with her tail between her legs. In fact, cousin Georgiana bumps into Valency, who is heading to her mother's house herself. Cousin Georgiana is positively quivering with excitement. She has great news for Valency. It turns out that Edward Beck, a 48-year-old well-to-do widower with nine children, well, nine children who survived anyway, saw Valency at Sissy's funeral and was impressed by her competence. And now he wants to marry Valency. He thinks she would be a great stepmother. And this is fairly prestigious for Valency. We need to talk about this for a second, though. <laughs> He decided that Valency would be a good second wife and a good stepmother to his nine children because he saw her competently presiding over a funeral. <laughs> it's like the world's worst audition for a job no one wants. <laughs> oh. Oh, I'm 48. I got nine kids. It's not like I was going to get like the pick of the litter. She's pretty good. Uh <laughs> So now Cousin Georgiana and Valency have arrived at Mrs. Frederick's home. Olive is just leaving. Aunt Wellington, Cousin Gladys, Aunt Mildred, and Cousin Sarah have just stopped in, as well as Uncle James and Uncle Benjamin. So luckily, <laughs> Valency can drop the bomb to everyone at once. She says, I thought I ought to drop in and tell you I was married last Tuesday night to Barney Snaith. The family is struck dumb. They cry. They threaten to disown her. They, they try cry. to find loopholes. 
They suggest that Valency is a changeling. They wonder about madness and split personalities. They try to guilt her. Mrs. Frederick says, Do you ever pray to be forgiven for disobeying your mother? Valency retorts, I should pray to be forgiven for obeying you for so long, but I don't pray about that at all. I just thank God every day for my happiness. Mm. Valency, in the throes of love and of living, pities her family's smallness. She takes herself off and hurries home, quite forgetting that she could have a fatal heart attack if she exerts herself. Valency is gloriously happy in her island cottage with Barney, and this begins probably the loveliest part of the book, their honeymoon summer with each other. Maud's description of the natural world surrounding their island cottage, their little lake, and the woods beyond truly bringing all that part of the world to life. To me, at least, it just sounded magical. Hidden lakes and deep woods dotted with wildflowers. The summer flows by peacefully. Valency bobs her hair. She makes little meals for them to eat out on the veranda. She wanders the woods with Barney, who turns out to know an awful lot about nature and wildlife. She enjoys the silence and she learns to swim in the lake in a swimsuit that would have scandalized the Sterlings, but that makes Valency feel free. She and Barney even slip into a fancy hotel masquerade ball one night to dance. They go berry picking. She fills their home with flowers she's gathered from the woods. Barney teaches her how to canoe across the lake and the sounds that all the birds make. The two of them are constantly just tromping around outside and even on a few occasions, they straight up sleep in the open air under the trees. Not even camping, just fully sleeping outside. I could never. But <laughs> for Barney and Valency, it's all part of their romance, which is totally wrapped up in the natural world. Barney shuts himself up in his secret room for a few hours every day, which Valency doesn't mind and doesn't care. Whatever his secret is, whatever his past or future, Valency is living 100% in the now. Barney nicknames Valency Moonlight. And although she's not conventionally beautiful, being happy, having an appetite, being outdoors has made her alluring and elfin. Barney occasionally goes away for a few days and Valency misses him deeply. Barney is surprised that he has missed Valency too. He admits to Valency that one night as he was returning to the cottage, quote, he stopped at the door of the blue castle and looked about him at the glorious lake, the great shadowy woods, the bonfires, the twinkling lights. Moonlight, I'm glad to be home again. When I came down through the woods and saw my home lights, mine, gleaming out under the old pine trees, something I'd never seen before. Oh, girl, I was glad. Glad. He doesn't know it yet or admit it to himself yet, but he's such a goner. <laughs> I love the way Maud builds their romance in these small, surprising realizations. Yeah. For her part, Valency's heart rarely bothers her, and when it does, it's easily treated with the medication. Her only bad pain attack is one in which she had run out of the medication. Valency starts to feel her old life fade away like a bad dream. She thinks, when death comes, I shall have lived. Summer rolls into autumn, and Barney and Valency hole up in the little cabin. They lay on the rug in front of the fire, and Barney reads to Valency, quote, Poetry and essays and gorgeous dim chronicles of ancient wars. So, Reagan, quick question for you. How many layers of clothing are these two wearing during those evening readathons? Fanfic writers need to know. Okay, Kelly, this is where I see the Iron Flame influence as you were switching back and forth between those two books. Very much so. Maud also gives us a handful of perfect passages describing the changing seasons that, for my money, put the quote, I'm so glad I live in a world where there are Octobers, to shame. I actually recently shared this one on our Instagram stories. November, 
with its uncanny witchery and its change trees, with murky red sunsets flaming in smoky crimson behind the westering hills, with days full of fine pale sunshine that sifted through the late leafless gold of the juniper trees and glimmered along the gray beaches, lighting up evergreen banks of moss and washing the colonnades of the pines. I mean, I love autumn as much as the next girl, but wow, Maud loves autumn. <laughs> and so does Valency, who is just soaking up every moment. As winter comes to the island and the nights grow longer, Sometimes Roaring Abel comes to play the fiddle and smoke a pipe with Barney. Sometimes they tramp around in snowshoes and explore the woods. Sometimes they curl up and read together in peace, balancing reading whatever she wants, even novels, even John Foster. And while Barney swears he hates the man, he brings Valancy Foster's latest book as soon as it's published. Sometimes they ice skate to Port Lawrence to see a movie and eat hot dogs. For Christmas, Valency feels relieved of all the hustle, bother, and family pressure. She cooks a delicious dinner, they decorate the cabin, and Barney gives her a necklace of pearl beads after Valency said she wanted something frivolous for Christmas. Valency worries they might have cost at least $15 and isn't sure if Barney can afford that. She has no idea what he does for money, although they always seem to have enough. But she decides not to worry about it and just enjoy the first pretty thing that she has ever owned. So spring starts coming back a little bit at a time. She and Barney have established a delightful rhythm at this point. They get each other's sense of humor, and Valency even notices that Barney laughs oftener and less cynically than he used to. They sometimes argue, but always make up. Valency wakes up in the night often to listen to the sound of Barney's breathing and to the wind and rain on the roof, to enjoy the sensation of being warm and cozy tucked in next to Barney. And... My heart just melts for these two, truly. Here's Valency, who for her whole life has been told that she's a bother and a nuisance, who has always felt unappreciated and anxious, and now she's relaxed in herself, confident of her worth and connected to the world around her. I love that scene where she stays up all night watching the trees move in the early spring winds, completely in the moment and unconcerned if she oversleeps the next day, because she knows Barney can make his own breakfast. <laughs> She is like wholly self-determined for once in her life. There's only one moment that has not been perfect happiness for Valency. In late March, Barney goes off for a long walk in the woods, planning to be back by dark. But a freak snowstorm springs up, the worst all winter. Barney can't get back, and Valency spends a sleepless night watching for him through the howling wind and freaking out. Quote, Valency died a hundred deaths that night and paid in full for all the happiness of her blue castle. In the morning, the storm breaks and Barney comes back, no worse for wear, Valency's knees collapsing from relief when she sees him. He had sheltered in an old lumber shanty overnight. He says he spent two years in the Klondike. He wasn't worried at all. Valency says, oh, when I saw you come round the point there, something happened to me. I don't know what. It was if I had died and come back to life. I can't describe it any other way. Spring is just as lovely as all the other seasons in the Blue Castle. And while the Sterlings, who have been trying their best to forget Valency's existence at all, resign themselves to seeing Barney and Valency around town now that the roads are clear enough for them to drive Lady Jane. Valency has also realized that Barney truly likes her. She had thought that he was just being nice to her, knowing she didn't have more than a year to live. But now she's realizing he really enjoys her company for itself. One evening on a sunset ramble, Valency feels especially connected to Barney, and he must feel it too because he blurts out, Oh, you nice little thing. Sometimes I feel you're too nice to be real, that I'm just dreaming you. 
Valency is still resigned to her death and notes that she hasn't had any pain attacks for over two months. She figures it's because her heart is just giving up and that it won't be so very long now. And then one evening in June, Barney and Valency go off to Port Lawrence for the evening. Valency needs to buy new practical shoes as her old ones have just fallen apart. So instead, she's wearing the highly impractical, fancy lace-up high heels that she never wears out of the house. On their way back, they step over the railroad tracks to cross at the switch, the train being plenty far away at the time. And somehow, Valency's high heel gets stuck in a crevice at the switch. And now the train is getting closer and she can't pull her foot loose, nor can she get her foot out of the shoe. Barney darts back and tries his best to free her. He can't get her foot out. The shoelace is in a terrible knot. He's slashing at it with his pocket knife. Valency is yelling at him to leave her so he won't be killed by the onrushing train. Never, he yells. And just in time, he gets her out of the shoe and drags them both clear of the track just as the train sweeps by. Yes, I love this. I love the dramatic rescue. Barney saves the day. Relief floods both of them, and Barney sits, burying his face in his hands, silent. Mm. Valency has only one thought in her mind. Dr. Trent's letter had told her that any excitement or shock would be absolutely fatal. So why is she not dead? Why indeed? Why does she feel fine? Her heart beating quickly, but surely. She is struck by the thought that Dr. Trent has maybe made a mistake. And the thought that follows is that she is sure that Barney has realized the same thing and now thinks that Valency had tricked him into getting married. They walk back in silence, Valency now wearing her practical shoes. Valency is abjectly miserable. And when Barney asks her if she feels okay, she truthfully says that she feels fine. Barney then closes himself in his secret room and she hears him pacing the night away in it. Eventually, Valency goes to bed, and when Barney comes in, they both pretend to sleep, Valency eventually tossing fitful through terrible dreams. And then when she wakes up, Barney is gone. The car is still on the mainland, so that means he's gone for a walk in the woods for the day, and Valency is sure he's angry with her, that he's trying to figure out how to get out of this terrible predicament she's trapped him in. Valency goes to see Dr. Trent to find out what's going on. Dr. Trent says he's happy to see Valency so healthy and, hey, you know, he told her not to worry about it anyway. And wasn't he right? Uh, Valency, for her part, is stunned. (laughs) She tells him that he said she'd die within the year and she shows him the letter he sent her. Dr. Trent realizes exactly what has happened. Old Miss Jane Sterling, Sterling with an E, had also been to see Dr. Trent that same day. Dr. Trent mixed up the letters when he mailed them, being in such a freaked out state about his son at the time. He clarifies that Valency had pseudoangina. That's not fatal, and it sometimes clears up with a shock of joy. Extremely believable condition there. (laughs) Extremely 1910s medical reasoning. Diagnosis, yes. (laughs) And Valency realizes she's had no pain at all since March, since Barney had gotten lost in the snowstorm, and Valency had felt reborn when he returned. So... We love this for Valency, but I tell you, I was very worried for Miss Sterling with an E, who we later learned was so very ill that she actually died within two months of her visit to Dr. Trent. Dr. Trent is deeply apologetic, 
Fearing Valancy had a year of misery, but also assuming that she would have sought out a second opinion, which, like, honestly, yes. This is, unfortunately, not good news for Valancy, who now is just worried that she's made a muddle out of Barney's life. It made the last year a lie instead of something beautiful. Remember Sissy's logic from earlier in the book? She couldn't bear to think of trapping the man she loved in a loveless marriage, even if it meant her own social ruin. Valancy feels the same way. Valancy trudges back to the island, and she sees parked on the mainland, right across from her island, a clearly expensive, garishly purple car driven by a chauffeur. Out pops a round old man who asks Valancy if she knows if Bernard Redford happens to live on that island. When Valancy says, no, it belongs to Barney Snaith, the man says, well, Snaith is his middle name. That was his mother's maiden name. Okay. <laughs> this is Barney's dad and he is doc redfern doc redfern of the purple pills and the blood bitters and the various quack snake oil remedies oh. clearly a millionaire <laughs> it's so bonkers <laughs> Balancy says she's barney's wife and doc redfern is shocked and a little join us doc redfern in being shocked <laughs> And and he's also a little sad that Barney got married without telling him. Oh, Doc Redfern. <laughs> Doc tells Valency that all the girls had been after Barney for his money when he was young. And Barney had been engaged to Ethel Travers, a beautiful, intelligent woman from the best family in Montreal. But they broke up and then Barney disappeared. That was 11 years ago. Doc Redfern only got the occasional postcard from Barney from the Yukon. England, South Africa, China. And then six years ago, the postcard stopped and Doc had no idea where Barney was. Until this past Christmas, when Barney withdrew $15,000 on his bank account by writing a check to Ainsley's, the biggest jewelry house in Toronto. Doc found out that a Bernard Redfern had bought a pearl necklace there and had given a post office box in Port Lawrence as his address. So, once the roads were clear enough to travel, here he is. Doc had also hoped to tell Barney that Ethel Travers was now a widow if he wanted to try again. But Doc's happy with whoever Barney wants to marry. Doc doesn't want to stay and wait for him as it's now approaching supper time. But he says he'll come back to see Barney tomorrow. Okay, Valency is dazed by this. But she realizes at least that Barney will be able to afford a divorce. I mean, I guess that's the upside of realizing that you trapped a millionaire into marrying you. <laughs> <laughs> And she's realizing that she's wearing a $15,000 necklace made of real pearls, not pearl beads. I will say though, Reagan, it's kind of shocking to think of a pearl necklace as costing that much money since now, I mean, cultured pearls are so common. Well, I thought so too, especially if we think about $15,000 in 1910 money, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I looked and there are some extraordinarily high-end pearl necklaces in the $45,000 range available now if you're interested. So Christmas present? Oh yeah, just send me the link. I'll send them to my husband. No <laughs> anyway, after Doc leaves, Valency decides that she can leave Barney now. He has the means to free himself from their marriage. She goes to leave him a note. She can't find a pen, so she wanders into Barney's secret shack. The door isn't locked, and she really isn't trying to snoop. She's just kind of like in a daze. She finds a big old writing desk and a chair, walls lined with books. On the desk is a bundle of galley proofs, and the page on top says Wild Honey by John Foster. She reads the first sentence, an ode to pine trees, similar to something Barney had once said to her on one of their nature rambles. Barney is John Foster. Barney is John Foster. 
And question, is Valency wild honey? Fanfic writers need to know. (laughs) How many more surprises can this girl take? I don't know. She's, (laughs) this is really like. This is a lot. In one day, she's not going to die. She's accidentally married a millionaire. Her father-in-law is Doc Redfern of the Blood Bitters. (laughs) And her husband is her favorite author. Author. It's like she can't even compute that at that point. She's just like, well, I guess anything could be true right now. Exactly. So she's stunned, but it doesn't change anything for her. She writes a brief note explaining the mix-up with Dr. Trent and that if she leaves him, that'll be grounds for divorce. So just let her know if there's anything else she can do to make divorce easy for him. Oh, also, (laughs) your dad came by today and he'll be back to see you tomorrow. Your dad, Doc Redfern. (laughs) She leaves the necklace on the note. She can't take it with her now as a souvenir. Not now that she knows how expensive it is. And she reluctantly goes back to her mother's house. When Valency arrives, she notices that the little rosebush, the one she hacked up, was now loaded with rosebuds. That's some pretty direct symbolism. When she walks in, Uncle Benjamin is there as well. Of course he is. Even the unobservant Sterlings can tell that something is deeply wrong. Valency recounts the whole sad story, the heart pains, the diagnosis, asking Barney to marry her, the mix-up with the letters, that Barney is actually Doc Redfern's son and the author, John Foster. Uncle Benjamin is no fool, and he sees the money opportunity here. All of a sudden, Barney Snape seems like a great addition to the family. They let her go off to her room and reconvene in the parlor. Uncle Benjamin has completely changed his tune about Barney. All the gossip is malicious and wrong. He always knew that Valency had a lot more potential. Her mother kept her down too much, etc. He advises, they all forgive Valency, give her some support and sympathy, leave her alone, and Barney will be along soon enough. Then they will encourage her, pressure her to return to him, and they will not let him divorce her. Such an opportunist, Uncle Benjamin. Valency is hopeless, though, and she's miserable. She can't stop thinking of every single moment with Barney. His jokes, some compliments, some caresses. She's sure that Barney will take the opportunity to go back to Ethel Travers, his ex-fiancee, and she can only see a life of grimness stretching in front of her, back in her old home again. She doesn't leave her room, and she refuses food. Well, no. The next afternoon, of course, Barney arrives in an absolute panic. Romance hero. He comes home from his ramble. He's been on a long, thoughtful hike. He realizes his wife is gone. There's a weird note. His dad somehow showed up. He demands to see Valency. Uncle Benjamin is hanging around waiting for Barney. He tries to be all like smooth and conspiratorial with him. Valency doesn't want to come down to see Barney. But Uncle Benjamin said that Barney refuses to leave without seeing her. And, you know, that is something that Barney would say. So Valency reluctantly emerges from her room. Barney sweeps her into his arms. Valency, darling, oh, you darling little idiot. What possessed you to run away like that? When I came home last night and found your letter, I went quite mad. Valency isn't getting it. She says, of course, Barney only married her out of pity. And he doesn't love her. Barney exclaims, love you? Oh, don't I love you? My girl, when I saw that train coming down on you, I knew whether I loved you or not. Valency still doesn't believe him. 
tells him he should go back to Ethel. Barney tells her everything. He was terribly teased and hazed at the fancy schools his dad sent him to. The old money kids shunned him because of the purple pill money. Or they pretended to be friends to his face only to mock him behind his back. He never felt like he fit in anywhere and he was deeply lonely. But Ethel seemed like she really loved him and he was happy. Until he overheard a friend ask her how she could stand Doc Redfern's son and the patent medicine background. Ethel had responded, his money will gild the pills and sweeten the bitters. Mother told me to catch him if I could. We're on the rocks. But pa, I smell turpentine whenever he comes near me. Well, after that, Barney left civilization, went traveling, started writing as John Foster, made a little bit of his own money from the books, and eventually came to this area and bought his little island. He kept away from everyone, though, never trusting that anyone would like him for himself, not for the money, until he met Valency. And yes, initially he was sorry for her, and that's why he married her. So he thinks... She loved him for him. And in his own words, I found you the best and jolliest and dearest little pal and chum a fellow ever had. Witty, loyal, sweet. You made me believe again in the reality of friendship and love. The world seemed good again just because you were in it, honey. I knew that the night I came home and saw my home light shining out from the island for the first time, and I knew you were there waiting for me. He goes on to say the moment on the railroad tracks was a lightning flash for him. I knew I couldn't live without you, that if I couldn't pull you loose in time, I'd have to die with you. And that was why he seemed so silent after. He was reckoning with that revelation and with the idea that Valency might still die because of her heart. When he came home from his sojourn in the woods, he was determined he would take Take her to all the specialists in the world. Sure, there was some way to outwit this diagnosis. And then he was thrilled to read her note saying that she was not in danger after all. But Valency is too deep in her pit of despair, and she is still sure that Barney is just trying to make the best of a bad situation. There's no way he could love her. Okay, Valency, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All of his declarations, and they are very good declarations, can't make her believe that he truly loves her. I mean, listen to this. He says, you're in the very core of my heart. I hold you there like a jewel. Didn't I promise you I'd never tell you a lie? Love you. I love you with all there is of me to love. Heart, soul, brain, every fiber of body and spirit thrilling to the sweetness of you. There's nobody in the world for me but you, Valency. Oh, it's the best. Truly, this is the best. This is the best love declaration. Thrilling to the sweetness of you. And meanwhile, Reagan, you know, my husband will literally text me something like, love you, babe. Got you chicken nuggets. <laughs> That's his grand declaration of love. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're hungry, chicken nuggets I mean, are amazing. I mean, I like chicken nuggets as much as the next girl, but come on. Phil, it's no I get thrilling you. to the sweetness of you. I get you. <laughs> Chuck, step up your game. <laughs> well, finally, Barney gets angry. Now he's convinced that Valency doesn't want him. Ah! Now, now that she knows about the Red Fern snake oil empire, she's embarrassed by him. And that's what convinces Valency that Barney means it. He wouldn't get that angry if he didn't truly love her. And finally, they embrace. Yay. Uncle Benjamin, who has been listening at the door, is thrilled. And he decides he's going to amend his will right away. And Valency should be his sole inheritor. That is weird. Deeply weird. What need has Valency for his money now? She's got that purple pill money. <laughs> Uncle Benjamin, get a grip. 
<laughs> Barney and Valency clear up a few things. They decide they will build a little house outside Montreal to be near his father in the winter, spend their summers at their blue castle on the island, and travel in the fall so Barney can show Valency the world. The book closes through the spiteful eyes of Olive, writing to her fiancé, absolutely disgusted with the fuss that the clan is making over Valency now that she has made such a successful match. Doc Redfern gave them $2 million as a wedding present. Okay. And they have a European itinerary planned for a honeymoon. And Olive can see that Valency is just laughing at all of them. But we end with this line, as Valency and Barney close up the cabin in September. She was so happy that her happiness terrified her. But despite the delights before her, she knew perfectly well that no spot or palace or home in the world could ever possess the sorcery of her blue castle. Ugh. Okay. You guys, that's the Blue Castle. We love it. It is truly one of our favorites. And we hope we've done it justice with this recap. We're going to skip some of our usual segments for time, but we do have one inspired by Anne to share. Well, of course, this time it's an inspired by Valency. So while I was reading, I was looking up some of the inspiration for these settings. I was just so delighted with all of Maud's descriptions. I had to know what part of the world she was talking about. And I learned that this area, which is kind of in and around Muskoka, Ontario, is called Ontario's Cottage country. It's a prominent vacation destination, both in Maud's time and today, due to its beautiful scenery and the many tiny lakes and islands. Lots of people spend their summer holidays in their own little lake houses, living out glorious summers, just like Valency does. So, I would invite our listeners to look up cottage rentals in Bala, which is the town Deerwood is based on, or in the Muskoka Lakes region generally, so you can live out your very own Blue Castle fantasy. But Kelly... Do they come with Barney? <gasps> Sadly, no. <laughs> That's a different kind of fantasy. <laughs> and now we're back to Iron Flame. <laughs> On that note, thank you for listening, Kindred Spirits. You can still get a free logo sticker from us by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing about us on social media. Just email us at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com or message us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub to tell us that you did that. Even if you don't want a sticker, leave us a rating or a review or share about us. It really helps other kindred spirits find us. Join us next time for our last episode of the season when we go deeper into how the themes of the Blue Castle connect with Anne's books. And we will have one of our very favorite guests, author and editor and Lucy Maud Montgomery fan, Katie Stewart, back to talk about these themes with us. Yay! Yay! Thank you, Kindred Spirits! <laughs> <laughs>